Hebrews 2020. This is Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus and we have arrived at increment 50. I'm honored to be here with my trusty co-laborer, James McClory. And we'll be going to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. En meso ecclesias. En meso ecclesias. Father, we pray that this message will go forth in such a way as to be burning in our hearts after we hear it, even as it is the message of your Son. May the word of Christ reside and circulate freely in our hearts, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, with a couple of inserted comments, goes like this. For in the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, because of whom and through whom all things exist, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, or we can say just as accurately, complete through suffering. For both the sanctifier and the sanctified are all of one, because of which he, Jesus the sanctifier, is not ashamed to call them, the sanctified, brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, and meso ecclesias, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing hymns to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God has given me. Through this homily, we are allowed to overhear We could even say, if you want, we can eavesdrop on a conversation between the Father and the Son. In Hebrews 1.5, confer with Psalm 2.7, where it's taken from, the Father says to the Son, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. And in Hebrews 1.8-9, taken from Psalm 45, Septuagint 44, the Father says again to the Son, Your throne, God, is for the ages of the age, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of equity. You loved righteousness and rejected lawlessness. That is why God, your God, has anointed you instead of your angelic companions. Here in Hebrews 2.12, the Son says to the Father, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing hymns to you. Taken from Psalm 22.22, which is the Septuagint or the Greek text, of Psalm 21, 23. 
The son will speak again to the father deep into this homily in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, which he will quote Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, or the Septuagint 39, 7 through 9. We'll study that, and it's a very important text. We've looked at it before. We'll look at it again. The PT discovers, in other words, a running dialogue between the Father and the Son in the canonical Psalms. The Spirit of Grace lets us in on this conversation. One of the great benefits and blessings of Hebrews is that we are taken into the throne room of God to hear a conversation between the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 2.10, the opening of this section, it is important to realize First, that it was God because of whom and through whom all things exist who made the founder of our salvation perfect or complete through suffering. Salvation is of the Lord, Psalm 3, 8. It is an act of vertical causality, meaning divine causation. It is the action of divinity, salvation is, just as the action of bringing everything into being is an act of vertical causality. Nothing came into being without him, that is, the word, the son. God perfected, or you can say completed, the founder of our salvation by making him a perfect savior. The savior of all of humanity. A humanity once infected by the systemic evil of sin and infested by the debilitating fear of death. The founder of our salvation became the perfect savior and liberator of all of the groaning creation of which humanity is a part. The founder of our salvation is the divine and human mediator of a divine salvation to all of humanity and of deliverance to all of the groaning creation. The founder of our salvation was not perfected or completed by himself, but by God, his Father. The Father perfected the Son through suffering. Through making the Son to be sin, an unthinkable thing, and yet in the Scripture in Second Corinthians 5.21, in making the Son to be sin... God perfected the Son as the founder of our salvation. Not an imperfect salvation. A perfect Savior is not the author of an imperfect salvation. A complete Savior is not the author or the founder of an incomplete salvation. Not an imperfect salvation. Not a salvation that did not encompass all of creation. And within all of creation 
all of humanity in all of its times. This is what we call a diachronic salvation. That is a salvation that spans all of time. It takes in all of humanity in all of its historical epochs and sequences, as well as all of creation in all of its time and history. Diachronic. That's D-I-A-C-H-R-O-N-I-C. A diachronic deliverance is our such a great salvation. God perfected or completed his son as the founder of a salvation that even encompasses the redemption of time and of history. That's extremely important. An extremely important message for all time and especially for our time. The son in whom God spoke with definitive finality in these last days, Hebrews 1-2, is now in the process of bringing everything that happens in the universe and everything that ever has happened, is happening, or will happen in human history as an offering that is well-pleasing to his father. All of history, all that happens in the universe and within the course of the history of humanity and all the course of time is being brought to the Father by the Son as an acceptable offering. That's what Hebrews 1.3b means when it says that the Son upholds and carries all things by his all-powerful word. And that means, among other things, that history itself And all that happens in it will be redeemed. All the evils that have occurred in history, and there are many of those, will be transformed into a supreme good thanks to God's perfecting or completing of the founder of salvation. This is the theology of the cross. Theologia Crucix, the theology of the cross, the word of the cross, which is presently regarded as folly to those who are perishing in this evil age. And this is what Bernard Lonergan called in Thesis 17 of his masterwork called The Redemption, The Just and Mysterious Law of the Cross. I have quoted this in series in the past. I'm quoting it in this series and will no doubt continue to quote this important thesis. It's a sublime thesis. And it bears repetition everywhere and in all the series of teachings in which we are engaged. Thesis 17 reads like this. Understanding the mystery, the law of the cross. This is why the Son of God became man, suffered, died, and was raised again, because divine wisdom has ordained and divine goodness has willed not to do away with the evils of the human race through power, 
but to convert those same evils into a supreme good according to the just and mysterious law of the cross. Again, this is called the law of the cross, the theology of the cross, what Paul called the word of the cross, which the presently perishing regard as so much folly, so much foolishness. Those who are perishing in this evil age regard the word of the cross as something not worth paying attention to. In fact, they may even consider it a message of evil. And this just and mysterious law of the cross is also rejected and considered folly by many who proudly wear the label Christian. But to those of us who are being saved, even now in this evil age, those of us who are being saved by the implanted word of the cross, to us it is the saving power of God. The salvation and the preservation of our minds during times of crisis as well as during times of prosperity. Now, the toppling of statues in our country has now graduated into the destruction of religious symbols and the burning of Bibles. No one burns the Bible who understands the word of the cross. Bibles are burned by those who think they are resisting and destroying an evil tradition and bringing about an impossible utopia. Bibles are burned by those who may be rightly offended by how the words of that book have been abused and misinterpreted, distorted and manipulated by people who have not been called by God at all, but who have greedily grasped that which they conceive to be power over people's consciences, the threat of eternal hell over people is one way by which immoral and unstable and evil men and women have abused the Bible. The Bible, which has often been touted as the best-selling book in the world, is fast becoming the most maligned of all books in the eyes of many. But like the message of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that it contains, the Bible is maligned and hated because it is not understood. The Bible itself is a manifestation in writing of the just and mysterious law of the cross. It is a depiction of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The just and mysterious law of the cross, of which the Bible speaks, 
is not understood. It is my fervent prayer, and I hope yours too, who are hearing this message, that this understanding will become widespread by the vertical causation of the spirit of grace in the hearts and minds of people, even of the people who are burning the Bibles. I pray that the burning of the Bibles, the burners of the Bibles, will have the message of the Bible burn in their hearts and be transformed. This understanding doesn't just happen. In fact, Paul prayed for understanding for us, that our eyes would be opened, that our eyes would be enlightened. This is what I pray for those who do not yet understand the just and mysterious law of the cross, by which God converts the evils of the human race, not by force or by power or by punitive action, but by this gracious benevolence of God and the power of resurrection. So it's my fervent prayer that this understanding will become a widespread epidemic by the vertical causation of the spirit of grace, that the spirit of grace will bring about this understanding. Jude wrote in Jude 1.10 about people who blaspheme anything they don't understand. And, what, and then he goes on to say, what they know by instinct instead of by understanding. Like unreasoning animals, they destroy themselves. Many times in conversations, we may have been guilty of it in the past, speaking evil of something we don't understand, maligning something we don't comprehend. The word of the cross is blasphemed and the Bible is maligned and hated by those who don't understand it. And that includes those who have never read it, those who have never studied it, and those who have read it but without understanding and studied it but without comprehension. Now there are initiators of this destruction in our own time. Instigators of revolution with the intention of bringing about an impossible utopia, a humanistic utopia that is impossible. Trained Marxists happen to think that it is possible and that they believe that any means necessary to bring it about are proper and appropriate. To them, their end, an impossible humanistic utopia, justifies any means whatever. Lying, destruction, even murder. 
These initiators or instigators are trained in tactics of destruction for whom the end justifies any means whatever. Their followers are often naive, usually naive. And often they are the young who do not understand what they're angry about, but relish the destruction, not realizing that they're participating in their own self-destruction. That's why I pray that they will be given an understanding, that they may know the true God, that they may see Jesus, and that the message of Jesus Christ will burn in their hearts. Our prayer to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is that he would grant to them the understanding of the Son, of Jesus, the founder of their salvation, that he would dispel the ignorance that leads to catastrophe, that they would come to understand the hope that the God of hope engenders by the very Bible that they want to burn. I'm speaking of the hope that becomes an anchor for the soul and that has entered into the region beyond the veil between two worlds where Christ himself lives and abides as our forerunner, as the pioneer who has settled and prepared a glorious land for all people to live in with the glorious freedom of the children of God, the children whom God has given to him. Hebrews 2, 12 and 13, Romans 8, 21, Hebrews 6, 20, 6, 19 and 20. May the message of the Bible that they wish to burn become the very message that burns within them. It burns within me, and I cannot stop proclaiming it. And believe me, for there are times when I have wished to. Now, speaking of children of God, we are examining a passage, really a section that takes in Hebrews 2.10 all the way to 18, which speaks explicitly about children, Hebrews 2.13 and 14, who were given to Jesus Christ in order to be brought to glory, given to him by the Father to be brought to glory. Following the psalm, that's 22-22, the Greek text being 21-23, following that psalm quotation, the PT who wrote Hebrews then uses a rhetorical nail gun, that's what I call it, because it goes again and again and again and still again. His rhetorical nail gun, and again and again, kai palin, kai palin, says the Greek. The words of Jesus uttered again, this time in Isaiah, with a distinctive nod to the Septuagint of 2 Samuel 22.3, where David's song of thanksgiving becomes Jesus' expression of trust in God. In 2 Samuel 22.3, David, and more importantly, when we read of David, we are reading of his descendant, Jesus Christ. 
He says, my God shall be my guard. I will trust in him, my protector and the horn of my salvation, my helper and my refuge for my salvation. You will save me from wrong. Here in Hebrews 2.13, it is Jesus who says, I will put my trust in him. Hebrews 2.13 also has a distinctive gesture, a pointing of the finger, as it were, to Isaiah 12.2, where it is Jesus who says, Behold, God is my Savior and my Lord. Speaking of his Father. I will trust in him and be saved by him and will not be afraid, for the Lord is my glory and my praise and he has become my salvation. Yahweh the Father became the salvation of the Son, who had become sin, and who had tasted death for everyone. The founder of our salvation. What a wonderful title for him. Hebrews 2.10. He let himself be put far from salvation, And put himself in need of salvation so that in his salvation we would be saved. In his deliverance we would be delivered. In his preservation we would be forever preserved. Jesus trusted in God for his salvation from an incomprehensible death. A death that he endured for us, for all of us. Jesus trusted in God as his Savior, and God answered that trust by becoming his salvation and ours. In this way, the sanctifier, Jesus, became one with the sanctified, the Savior, one with the saved. When we realize that Jesus needed to be saved and put himself into a position where he could not save himself, as Psalm 22, 29, and 30 teaches, then we see Jesus all the more as our brother, who is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, Just like we call one another brothers and sisters as fellow saved people. In fact, not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters is an understatement. It means that he's proud to call us his siblings, his brothers and sisters. Now, it may seem to you that I'm playing with the scriptures here. But I'm not. I'm playing on them as my instrument. I'm using them in a way that our creator intends them to be used. For our edification. For our encouragement. For the communication of hope and endurance. For the author of the scriptures is our glory and the lifter of our head. When our heads are bowed in suffering or shame, or temporary defeat. 
It is not the Redeemer myth, the Gnostic myth of the redeemed Redeemer that the writer of Hebrews is influenced by in his writing. He's speaking rather of the Messiah Jesus as he is revealed in the scriptures, not in a Gnostic myth. Jesus indeed is the redeemed Redeemer for sure. And he, in fact, and in reality, is one with all the redeemed as the Redeemer who became our sin in order to be made our righteousness so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. I'm using innovation within the scriptures. I'm innovating within them. I'm doing improvisation on these scriptural themes so that we can see Jesus in a way that we have not seen him before. By innovating and improvising, I'm not twisting or distorting the scriptures. I'm only letting them be displayed in a way that doesn't just duplicate a thousand other sermons, canned sermons. Or, but I'm doing it in a way that portrays the face of Jesus in which the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines. Shines, in fact, into our hearts and into the hearts, prayerfully, into the hearts of a benighted generation. So Hebrews 2.13, let's look at it. And again, I will put my trust in him. We refer here to Isaiah 8.17 with a nod to Isaiah 12.2 and another nod to 2 Samuel 22.3. 2.13b, and again, here I am with the children God has given me. That from Isaiah 8.18. Again, made to be, as it is intended, a word of Jesus. We've been considering the reference to Isaiah 8.17 in which I will put my trust in him is revealed to be a word spoken by Jesus with reference to God the Father. Wholehearted trust, faithful trust in God was the characteristic and disposition of the Son made flesh of Jesus during the entire duration of what the Bible calls the days of his flesh in Hebrews 5.7. That wholehearted trust embraced a faithful obedience even to the death of the cross and through that death to the midst of the church where Jesus proclaims the name of God and sings hymns in the midst of the church. Psalm 22 22, Septuagint 21-23. Now this quotation has what I would call an eschatological ring to it. And it correlates with Romans 15-9, which is taken from 2 Samuel 22-50 and Psalm 18-49. Again, it correlates with Romans 15 and verse 9. 
and second second Samuel twenty two fifty very close to the quotation in Hebrews and Psalm eighteen forty nine which is the Greek text seventeen fifty. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing psalms to your name. Now, this is where I want to pause for a moment and consider something, and I hope you'll reflect with me on this, because as the psalmist said, my heart is indicted with a pressing theme, a topic. Let's pause here and consider that even now, Even now, Jesus is in the midst of the church, the midst of the congregation, the assembly, proclaiming God his Father's name, even now. This was certainly true in what is known as the early church, or the early history of the church, according to Luke in Acts 1.1, where he wrote that his premier narrative And prequel to Acts, that which we call the gospel according to Luke, Luke himself says was all about that, what Jesus began to do and teach. What Jesus began to do and teach. Luke ends with his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And promise of the coming spirit. Acts begins with the coming of that spirit. And before that, with many appearances of Jesus Christ in the midst of the church. The implication is that Jesus continued to do and teach in the church, in the midst of the congregation, following his resurrection from the dead. In fact, Luke explicitly says that after Jesus' resurrection, quote, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Acts 1.3. So we can say then, and this is part of this central reflection today, we can say then that Jesus has already and is even now proclaiming the name of God in the midst of the church, though he may use the mouths of others to do so, and that he continues to do so even now. Beyond Acts, the book of Acts, in the early chapters of Revelation, we see Jesus, the Son of Man, one like a son of man, as he's called, standing in the midst of the seven churches, which are represented metaphorically as a Jewish symbol of the seven menorahs or lampstands. In the midst of the church, in the years and months leading up to the earth-shaking events of A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus was in the midst of the church during that whole time, proclaiming, encouraging, warning, advising his people as to what they should do in the light 
of an impending apocalyptic shaking. Sounds like Hebrews. Sounds like Hebrews for a 2020 audience. Sounds like Hebrews 2020 is exactly tailor-made for such a time as this. As Mordecai put it, when he encouraged his niece Esther to step up in her generation. Paul helps us with understanding that Jesus was in the midst of the church already and even then. When Paul spoke of Christ speaking in him, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, Paul said, because Christ was speaking in him. He was proclaiming his father in the midst of the church through Paul. 2 Corinthians 13, 2. Paul also spoke of Christ in and among the Gentiles as the hope of glory. Colossians 1, 26 and 27. Already, then, and now. And of Jesus Christ in you, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves and see whether Jesus Christ is in you. Paul said to his audience in Corinth and to us. Now, we are not in a church, and many Christians aren't in a church. While we are not in church, we say, we should be learning what church really means. It is the congregation in the midst of which stands Jesus, whom God wishes for us to see. And the church isn't a building, as you know. It's not a sanctuary. It isn't where I'm standing now and where Jim is attending to his ministry now. It isn't this building. It is wherever two or three are gathered in his name. In fact, it is wherever any Christian is because he's in us. There may be a time in our own nation which will be more extreme than this. As there is in many other places in the world where in some places churches are being bulldozed like in communist China. Christians are being butchered in places that have not enjoyed the costly freedom that we have in the United States of America, a freedom that's being threatened now by the ignorant and by the instigators of a Marxist revolution and by others for whom the ends, their own impossible utopia, justifies any means whatsoever. Someday we may not be meeting in a church building and we'll be scattered across the earth or across this land, meeting in secret, meeting in homes, meeting in basements, meeting in places that have to be secretly announced. Who knows? But we will know that Jesus is in the midst of his church, wherever it's found. 
and in whatever state it's found. If it's persecuted, he's there with them, suffering their persecution. If it's being exalted or blessed, he's there with them, sharing their blessing and exaltation. If it's enduring shameful treatment, he's there with them, enduring with them the shameful treatment because he is a compassionate, co-suffering high priest. We should be learning what church really is while we're absent from church buildings. In John's gospel, Jesus spoke of not leaving his disciples alone and of sending the spirit of truth, the comforter, the parakletos, the encourager to them who would lead them into all truth, who would show them things to come and who would glorify Jesus by making him seen. John 14, 16 to 17, 15, 26, 16, 7 to 15. The spirit of truth, as he's called by Jesus, is also referred to as the spirit of Jesus in Acts 16, 7. And as the spirit of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1, 19. In Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. In Hebrews 10, 29, John's spirit of truth is called the spirit of grace. The spirit of grace and of truth manifests and magnifies the only eternally begotten Son of God, the Word made flesh, who is full of grace and truth. John 1.14. In other words, the spirit of grace and truth makes it so that people can see Jesus, who is filled with grace and truth. Jesus is certainly in the midst of his church now, even now. Though at and after his parousia, his universal appearance, he will be visibly and universally manifested and leading a universal chorus of praise to his father. This universal chorus led by Jesus will occur when Jesus will have handed the kingdom over to his father after every knee bows and every tongue enthusiastically acknowledges Yahweh to be Jesus to the glory of God the Father. Until then, we must be aware, or if we aren't aware yet, we must be awakened and then woke, to use a term of our times, woke to the reality, with a capital R, that is Jesus in the midst of his church. He is with us, teaching and doing. He is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as we sing them. Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.15 and 16. If we see him in this way, we will never be the same in our assembly meetings when we sing and make a melody in our hearts together. As he is in our midst, Jesus is suffering with our suffering. 
He is a compassionate high priest to us, as we're going to learn in 2.17 and 18. Compassionate means that he suffers with us. Compassion with suffering. Suffering with. He is our co-sufferer as we undergo the formative and educative sufferings that can form us into his image and that are necessary. So all of this is intended, all that I've said today, is intended to what we might say, put some meat on the bones of Hebrews 2, 10 to 13, which again reads like this, for in the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, because of whom and through whom all things exist, should make the founder of their salvation complete through suffering. For both the sanctifier and the sanctified are all of one, because of which he, Jesus the sanctifier, is not ashamed to call them, or us, the sanctified, brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name, Father, to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation, en mesoecclesias, in the middle of the congregation, in the middle of the church, I will sing hymns to you. And again, says Jesus, I will put my trust in him. And again, says Jesus, here I am with the children God has given me. He trusts in God for us. He trusts in God as us. His faithfulness is the reason for our justification, our sanctification. The sanctifier who trusts in God is one with the sanctified, who in him trusts in God. You want to imitate Jesus Christ? Then it's not a matter of doing what Jesus does, except that we fully trust in God. What would Jesus do? He would fully trust in God. Fully, faithfully trust, wholeheartedly trust. We live by his faithfulness, the faithfulness of the Son of God. We don't frustrate the grace of God by doing otherwise. We live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, says Galatians 2.20. We don't frustrate God's grace in 2.21. We imitate his fidelity. Because the justified will live by his faithfulness. And they shall live by being faithful. And that faithfulness is the fruit of the spirit produced in us as we walk in the spirit. All of it is vertical causation. Acts of vertical causality. Something God does. It's God's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. It's God who does the doing. And we who do the marveling. We see Jesus in the midst of his congregation. Proud to present himself with the children whom God gave to him. Now we're only in the middle of the second chapter of a 13 chapter document called Hebrews. Already. Already now. And this is increment 50. We see Jesus as the son in whom God spoke and continues to speak with finality in these last days. 
We see him already as the radiance of God's very splendor, the precise stamp of the Father's substance, the agent of universal creation, the mediator of providence, the precise mover of history in a redemptive direction. The mover of history in a redemptive direction, I said. The one who made purification for sins, the sins of the whole world, and who was exalted at the right side of the majesty in the unimaginably high height of the heavens. We see him exalted and enthroned. Already we see him as the one who is better than the angels, higher than angels, and who has inherited a name that's above all of their names, both in this age and the one to come. Already we see Jesus as the firstborn whom God brings into future world and has done so, and whom all the angels of God worship. Already, even now, we see him as one addressed by God as God. And as the one man who loved righteousness and rejected lawlessness thoroughly. As the one who abides and who himself reverses the entropy of the universal creation of the cosmos. We see Jesus as the man whom God thinks of and the son of man whom God visits with salvation. But only after this son of man endures being far from salvation as he tasted death for everyone. We see Jesus even now in the midst of the congregation called the church, doing, teaching, singing, ministering, showing mercy, counseling, advising, visiting, comforting, suffering with us. Imagine, if we see him as all these things even now, what will it be when we see him then completely in the eschatological moment, in the telos? There's no way to describe the indescribably joyous result of that seeing other than to say we shall be like him when we see him, for we will see him as he is. We're seeing him now through a glass darkly as the King James style poetry of 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says it. Seeing him now through a glass darkly, we are being conformed, nevertheless, increment by increment from one degree of glory to the next, as 2 Corinthians three eighteen puts it, into his image. Seeing him then in that final moment, in that end of history as we know it, in the parousia, when we all enter future world, and into the festive fatherland that God has prepared for us all. Seeing him then, seeing him face to face, we will become like him completely, bodily, We who have this hope and cherish this hope in the center of our being. We purify ourselves from the hopelessness that's around us. 
and from the lies that pervade the troublesome atmosphere of our times. Those of us who have this hope, as 1 John 3, 3 puts it, hold it as an anchor for the soul, not an anchor that's dropped into the sea beneath us, but one which is firmly placed beyond the separating veil in heaven, where Jesus, our forerunner, is already where he saves our place there with him. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. In Hebrews 2, 13b, we see him in the irresistibly attractive light as the S-I-R, the single inclusive representative of us all. He announces himself and all the children whom God gave him with him in Isaiah 8.18. Again, it is not ultimately Isaiah who says this about his own biological kids, but Jesus speaking of the children God has given him, the many sons and daughters whom God calls and whom Jesus is leading to glory. Those whom he refers to, for example, in John 6.39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. Or in John 10.29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And still again, in John 17, 2, for you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to all you have given him. Now, as we continue in Hebrews, and we're done for this increment, but as we continue in Hebrews, we're about to see him as our champion, as our hero, who has grappled with and destroyed the one who has power over death, that being the devil. He does this in answer to the petition that we pray so often, deliver us from evil, deliver us from the evil one. He has done so through defeating and destroying the power of the evil one, which was a power to keep us enslaved to death, the fear of death, all our lives. And before we're done with chapter 2, we will also see Jesus for the first time in this homily, in this holy homily, as our sympathetic and faithful high priest. And Father, we look forward to continuing verse by verse, line upon line, here a little, there a little, increment upon increment, in seeing your Son and being transformed from one incremental degree to the next into that image. And we thank you for this privilege and this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.